Hello, and welcome to another episode of Betty in the Sky with a Suitcase. I'm Betty. I'm a flight attendant for a major airline. I'm also an avid traveler, and I bring you stories from the airplane, from the pilots who fly those airplanes, and from traveling around the world. This episode is called People Are Strange. <laughs> because in my job, with all the people on board, just the sheer numbers, you are going to run into some strange people. And when I say strange, it means any number of things could be a little crazy, maybe just slightly odd. But you know, strange can also be interesting. And we're going to hear stories about quite a few strange passengers, even a strange pilot. And then I'm going to tell you... <laughs> A story, it's actually one of my uh, more favorite travel stories from Morocco. And my friend and I went on a camel trek in the Sahara Desert, and we lost our camels. And I think most people, when they hear the story, think that I'm strange. <laughs> for that particular trip we were on. But uh, it's very entertaining. So let's start off with uh, People are Strange. I had a late night flight one time. And I had Mr. and Mrs. Middle America in their early 80s. <laughs> So the man came back to the galley and offered me $200 for my underwear. He said he collected underwear from all different professions of women. He had a teacher, a nurse, etc. He still needed a stewardess's underwear. What did his wife think about the underwear? Part? She was okay with it she because I went up and asked her. Anyway, I refused them. I went, you would not want mine. Mine could double as a tablecloth. I got those big giant ones, not those little sexy ones. He goes, no, I'll still take them. And I went, no, they're not for sale. $200. Yeah, he wanted to give me $200. And you don't think he was like a perv? You think he just... No, I just think he was a little eccentric. So so I was flying with this really gay flight attendant, male. He goes, shit, I'll sell him mine for $20. <laughs> anyway, the man didn't want the male flight attendants. Going to Santiago? We were going to Santiago, and I was working first class, and uh, there was maybe about eight or nine people up there. And unfortunately, when you go to Santiago, uh, Dominican Republic, it's quite primitive. They, they, they've really never traveled on an aircraft. So um, I'm passing out hot towels right before our service, and uh, people are taking the hot towels, and I proceed to come to this lady in 5C, and I offer her a hot towel, and she takes it, she looks at it, and then she puts it in her mouth to bite in it. <laughs> so I had to go back to the, and I went back to the the lab, uh, the, the the galley, and started laughing my head off. And it tastes good, exactly right. <laughs> so then, not more than five minutes later, I'm coming back and I'm offering uh, drink service, and I asked the lady, um, same lady, mind you, I said, "What would you like to drink?" And she said, "Well, I have a glass of red wine with sugar, and." With sugar, yeah, because she, well, she wanted to put the sugar in the red wine. And I actually told her, I said, absolutely not. I said, this is not Kool-Aid. <laughs> I said, there, we don't put sugar in our, in our red wine. And she says, okay, whatever. 
And towards the end of the flight, she liked my work. She says, do you take tips? I said, no, we don't take tips here. Uh, she says, well, in America, we offer tips. I was like, okay. I said, do you realize that this is an American carrier? <laughs> and, I, and I'm speaking English to you? <laughs> so, so she says, Oh, sugar. Oh, yeah, they do. They put they put sugar in there. Well, they put sugar in Coke. They, when we're going through um, with the little coffee cups, and the coffee cups are like four ounces, and they want ten, literally ten sugars. They want ten sugars for half a cup of coffee, and the other half is milk, and and they really just want it just to taste. And then they'll give these like these five and six year olds four packs of sugar, and, and that's I mean that's why they have diabetes and, and heart attacks, and and, and, and you no got. Cheese. And no tea, rotten tea, and you got kids running up and down the aisle going, ma, 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 ma. And then you got the mother going, ya, ya, ya. Por favor, siéntate. <laughs> well, we were, we were in Atlanta. And uh, we were sitting at the gatehouse, and the gate agent just doing his final check. And up comes a uh, passenger. He's running. And he says, am I going to make the flight? And the gate agent says, don't worry, man. You're going to make it. He goes, I just need to get on. He says, and he's pointing to the airplane. He says, your ship is right there. And the, and the guy stops in his tracks. Seriously, he goes, I'm not going on a ship. I'm going on an airplane. <laughs> <laughs> and we looked at each other. The gate agent and I, we looked at each other. And we looked at, like, if, is this guy for real? But he was pointing right to the airplane. He says, he goes, your ship's right there. He goes, I'm not going on a ship. I'm going on an airplane. We used to have a captain in Chicago on the 727 who had a puppet. Yeah, he had a puppet. So he put his puppet on. And whenever you did something you weren't supposed to do, he wouldn't say, like, you know, don't do that. Or he would get the puppet out. Like a sock puppet? Or a what sock kind of puppet, puppet on his hand. And he would go, like, he would go, I forget the puppet's name. It's like, Herman says, you shouldn't be doing that right now because of so-and-so. So this is the way he would fly. And then he'd put his puppet away and be normal. <laughs> this guy's still flying today. So I don't know about... So, they were flying along one day, and, you know, they get this puppet. They were taxiing in, and the co-pilot's packing his bag because they were taxiing in. He's packing his bag, getting ready, last yeah. leg of the trip, you know. And so he's like, Herman says, you shouldn't be packing your flight kit while I'm taxiing the airplane. <laughs> so, okay. So they get to the gate, you know. The next trip they show up, same guy again with the puppet, you know. So the engineer walks in and says, uh, and he's eating an ice cream cone. So this guy gets, you know, he went out and got an ice cream cone. This guy goes, Herman sure likes ice cream. You know, and he, this guy had been doing this the whole time. And the engineer says, you like ice cream, Herman, here. And he took his <laughs> ice cream cone and just stuffed it in the puppets. So the guy cleaned them all up, you know. Because back then, this was a long time ago, engineers made nothing. I mean, little of nothing. Less than a little of nothing. So he cleans the puppet up. And they're, they're doing the same thing. They're taxiing somewhere. And, and the co-pilot's doing something. And, and he's, Herman says you shouldn't be doing this. And so the co-pilot says, Herman, you need some fresh air. He opened the window, grabbed the puppet, and threw him out the window. <laughs> and that was the end of Herman. <laughs> Putting the 
aircraft and I could see down the jetway and this lady came uh, down and she was holding the hand of this young gal that was probably 13 or 14. Seemed very nice and I'm standing there all perky and hi, welcome aboard, how are you? And all of a sudden the young gal just hauled off with her fists and hit me really hard in the head. <laughs> really hard. I was so stunned. And then I... My eyes got really big. But what had you done? You, you... Nothing. I just welcome aboard. <laughs> and anyway, the mother just like yelled at her daughter, no, 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 no. So I I said promptly, um, where are you sitting? And uh, she told me. So then I walked out and called the agent. I said, do we have any record or any issues of anything going on with this, this passenger seat? I think it was 24A. And she said, no. And I said, I told her what happened. She goes, oh, my gosh. So anyway, I walked back, and I asked um, the mom. I said, um, is everything okay? I said, you know, we really can't have her hitting the passengers in flight. She can hit me, but I don't, want her, I don't want her hitting the passengers during her flight. So uh, she said she didn't really know what set her off, um, but uh, she did explain that she was autistic, and so I understood, and I said, well, as long as you're sure that, she, you know, that she won't be a problem during the flight, you know, that's okay. No On the 727, we were going somewhere back east, and uh, this guy was sitting at uh, row 45 there in front of the galley, and he was stoned. And uh, he's looking out the window. We were still on the ground, and he says, "Oh man, that is so groovy. That is so far out. Jimi Hendrix is on the tail of that airplane." And I look out the window, and I said, "That's not Jimi Hendrix. That's an Eskimo. That's Alaskan Airlines." <laughs> He said, what it is, is what it is. <laughs> no people, stay people. Come around and we'll leave no people. As an instructor, he's an F-16 pilot, and he was a good guy. Uh, joined the airlines, and he had moved to Manhattan. He was a farm, farm boy from the Midwest. And he is single, and he had taught fighter pilots he had taught in the airline world how, how to uh, 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 train on different types of equipment and he was fairly good, fairly renowned instructor and so he kind of built up the idea that he could teach almost anyone anything. So he meets this, this fine woman from Manhattan who had never really been off the island. Uh, they fell in love and eventually got married and her being the dutiful wife trying to enjoy what her husband enjoyed. Uh, learned that he liked to hunt, and so she wanted to go hunting with him. So he says, I can, I can teach a guy how to fly an F-16. I can teach my wife how to hunt. So he goes downtown, finds a, a beautiful hunting rifle. They go to the range, and he teaches all about marksmanship, and, and she's an intelligent, bright person. So she picks all this up, no problem. She comes an excellent markswoman. And he thinks he's covered all the, the concepts of hunting, and hunting season comes about. They go up to upstate New York, he gets a deer lease with a blind and gets all this set up and he's got all the right gear. So they get out in the SUV, they get close to the hunting blind, 
gets out and has to hike a little way, so they start unloading all the stuff, and he gets her all set up in the hunting blind. She's got her rifle, and he instructs his wife, now look up here, there's quite a few people hunting. It's not uncommon for a kill to be poached. So if you see someone, you know, that comes up upon your kill thinking it's theirs, just, you know, fire a shot in the air and let them know that, that that's your kill. And he's thinking, they, they've been so noisy that there's not a deer within a, within 25 miles of the blind. So he leaves her with the hunting rifle up in the blind, goes down the, the ladder, goes back out to the SUV to get some more supplies. And just as he gets out of the clearing, he hears a pop and he's, he realizes his wife has fired off around. He can't believe it because he, he can't figure out what in the world she's shooting at. So he turns around and starts running out of the woods. He breaks out in the clearing and sees his wife up in the deer blind. Her rifle's up in the air, barrel pointed upwards. And she goes, bam, bam, fires off a couple of shots and screams out, get away from my deer. And he looks out in the clearing. Here's this guy backing up. His hands are raised in the air. And he shouts out to the lady, 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 you can have your deer. Just let me get my saddle off of him. Apparently there's one part of the hunting concept that this instructor forgot to tell his wife. to Morocco and we really wanted to do a camel trek, a camel safari in the Sahara Desert. And we had looked at different trips that are organized from the United States and they cost like between $1,500 and $3,000. And you know, that's just not in my budget. So we did a little research and got a Lonely Planet guidebook, which I always do before a trip. And in the Lonely Planet, it said you could arrange camel treks from this little town in the desert called Merzuga. And there were no roads into town. You'd have to hire a four by four and a driver from a nearby town to drive you in. They, they guide by the stars to get you in. And then once you were there that you could arrange camel treks for like $30 a day. <laughs> that was much more in my budget. So my friend and I, my friend is a very good traveler. That's a very difficult thing to find. She is she doesn't get worked up. She um, enjoys everything. She can do budget. She can, you know, she she's just very low key and really enjoys traveling and basically sort of gave me a lot of my love of travel was traveling with her. So the two of us, we get to, uh, we hire a four by four and we drive by the stars out into this little village, not even, there's hardly any buildings, uh, town called Mirzuga and we get there and something about Morocco or Arab countries in general I'm blonde and my friend has long red hair and uh, you're sort of popular in Arab countries not only because you look different but because you're accessible uh, like in Morocco they don't have that much contact with their own women women can't go to restaurants or a coffee shop there's all these you know limitations on women who live there but as a tourist you sort of have carte blanche so there's interest in you for any number of reasons, but consequently, <laughs> everywhere we went in Morocco, we were followed by a whole bevy of boys, boys between the ages of like 
12 and 26, <laughs> they just all start following you around. And they were always very nice, not at all pushy. And it was kind of fun. And so sure enough, as soon as we arrive in this town, we get dropped off, dropped off by the four by four. And all of a sudden, boys start gathering around. We try to talk to them. We don't speak much French. And they have just a little bit of English. And we're saying, you know, camel, Biavac, which is like camping, you know, or pointing at the sand dunes, desert. And sure enough, they go, oh, oh, oh. Uh, they point to this one very attractive 21 year old Moroccan boy. And they're like, camel driver, camel driver. And we're like, oh, good. And uh, he had a little more English. And we enjoyed talking with him. And he explained that he was indeed a camel driver and that we could arrange a camel trek from this hotel. So we went down there and the woman behind the counter, she actually spoke English. And we said, you know, we wanted to go three days in the desert. And she said, okay, great. And she said, and this will be your camel driver. And out walked this like 80-year-old wrinkled man with no teeth. And um, we said, uh, no, we, we'd like to have him. <laughs> the really beautiful 21-year-old guy that we'd already uh, established in a relationship with. And so she said, oh, that's fine. So here we go. We start off on our three-day camel trek in the desert. Well, our driver, Hamid, decided to bring along some of his friends, mainly because they wanted to be around the American women, you know, maybe marry an American woman and get yourself out of the desert. I don't know. But instead of just the camel driver and us, there were, you know, the two of us and a group of boys walking behind our camels. <laughs> But yeah, it was fun. And uh, the first night we actually stayed in a actual Berber nomadic uh, family. We stayed in their their tent out in the Sahara Desert. We we really had a fantastic time. They they cooked for us and we sang and we danced and they played instruments and we just were feeling so grateful, like so excited that we really had, we felt like we had really gotten off the map. You know, we'd really gotten out there. We were really doing something different and fun. And we just had a great time. And my friend and I said to our camel driver, you know, we want to go further into the desert and we want to camp, you know, pitch a tent instead of uh, being an actual family's tent. And he was like, okay, sure. So we go further into the Sahara Desert. And at this time, a lot of the boys dropped off because uh, they had places or things they had to do. So now the only people who are left is our cute camel driver, like an 18-year-old friend of his that was walking the other camel. So basically, we we needed two camel drivers. And then this other man who was 26, we were calling him, it's not very nice, I suppose, but caveman, just because he had didn't seem like he had ever brushed his teeth in his 26 years of life because there was that much slime on his teeth. But we were enjoying him, actually, because he had uh, been to school and he spoke English, so it was easier for us to communicate with him. So we were still even enjoying Caveman. And so now there's just Caveman, our driver, this 18-year-old, and my my friend and I. And uh, we get to where we're going to pitch the tent and we're pitching the tent and my friend and I are like running off in the sand dunes. You know, you can like ski down them. It's like really fun. And, you know, we're just having a good time. And our camel driver is sweet and really fun to talk to. And I'll tell you a few things that he said to me 
later on that I'll never forget, actually. But um, because he was so sweet and young and new at this job, and he liked the camels, he was supposed to tie the camels two front legs together so that they could go and eat, but so they wouldn't go too far. And I guess because he was being nice to the camels, he didn't tie them very tight. Well, what he didn't realize and what we didn't realize at the time was that our camels wandered off. And we were too busy, you know, setting up camp and having a good time. Didn't notice that the camels were gone. <laughs> Not until it gets dark and our poor little driver realizes that he can't find the camels. And he's getting worried now that he's in trouble. You know, he's in charge and he lost the camels. So he goes off running in the desert. We give him our flashlight. He didn't have a flashlight to go running off into the desert. So that leaves my friend and I with these two guys who really aren't even supposed to be there and they're smoking pot I don't do anything like that but uh, I guess it's you know popular in Morocco so a lot of old hippies still there in Morocco anyway so the two of them start getting a little I guess angry with us when they start to realize they're not you know gonna get an American wife to take them out of the desert and they're not gonna get lucky or anything like that I mean that was the last thing on our minds but I guess it was on theirs so they start basically telling us some scary stories about oh you know did you hear about these women that were raped and murdered out in the desert and the mood was really taking a turn and my friend who is such a good traveler and so calm and never gets riled up says can I see you in the tent? And I was like, okay. So we go in the tent and she, she got her hands out and she's like, we drop everything and we run. And I was like, I'm not going to run out in the Sahara desert with nothing. We don't even have a flashlight. And she's like, you know, if something happens to us, people are going to say, what were they thinking? And they were going to be right. And she was right, actually. You know, we really were taking a risk and it had turned bad and it could have gotten worse. But we kind of thought, I kind of talked her out of the, you know, running out in the desert thing because I was, I was way afraid of that. And I kind of said, you know, I think, you know, they're so skinny. It's so poor. I think we could take them almost if we needed to. And I said, why don't we just try to humor them, get back to doing some of the other things we were doing, try to change the mood. And, you know, it, it turned out okay. I mean, I know that it could have turned a different way. But um, our camel driver came back and realized that the camels had gone all the way back to the hotel. It turned out later that our camel driver that we were supposed to have the 80 year old guy had to walk the camels all night to get us our camels by the morning and um ended up having a sandstorm that night and I thought goodness gracious we're still gonna have to walk out of this desert oh and our camel driver had sent caveman home since he was kind of the one that we were scared of and um but something I wanted to tell about this story you know sure enough it's a little risky and I guess people would say I'm that we were strange or crazy for putting ourselves in that situation. But as we were walking on our three-day trek with my camel driver, who was just adorable, I really learned so much and changed my perspective on a lot of things. He would say things to me as, you know, he's walking, I'm on the camel. He would say things like, so you have a car? And I'd say, yeah, I have a car. And then he points to my friend and he says, and she has a car. And I was like, yeah, she has a car, you know. Uh. And he said, why don't you give one away? 
And I couldn't believe how sweet, like he was saying, you know, how could you possibly be so wealthy and not share it? And I, I was trying to explain to him. I said, well, I have a job and I have to get to work and she has a job and she has to get to work and we don't live together. And that's why we both have cars. And he's like, you don't live together. And I'm like, no, we don't live together. I live alone. She lives alone. And he's like, you live alone. To him, that was completely unfathomable. And I asked him how many people he lived with. And I made him write the number in the sand because I kept thinking, surely he means six or 16. But it was 60, six zero. He lived in a house and there were no big dwellings anywhere I could see. Um, and then he said something else to me. He said, so you have a computer in your house. And I'm like, well, yeah, I have a computer in my house. And what he was saying is to get to a computer, he would have had to get out of the desert to a city, to a college, to use a computer. And just made me realize that we basically had the same job. You know, he's in charge of taking care of people, giving them food and drink. And that's my job also. And he makes like a dollar a day. And I make enough that I can travel to see his world, whereas he'll never get the opportunity to travel to see mine. And it really, certain experiences like that, they really just show you that everything is so relative and that in this country, we take so much for granted. And it makes you realize you can get into a mindset here that you are relatively poor, at least compared to other people, but really, we are also wealthy. Anyway, um, I had felt so bad when I got back and I had enjoyed his company so much, even though we had that little weirdness out in the desert with the other gentleman, that uh, when I got home, I sent him, I went to the Gap, you know, it gets cold in the desert at night, and I sent him a couple sweaters and a book and um, French, just because, you know, I just, I don't know, I just wanted to send him something. And I realized later, I probably shouldn't have done that because like six months later, there's this what I thought was trash by my apartment door. And I'm like, why is someone dumped trash in front of my door? And I realized when I saw some Arabic writing that he had sent me a package all the way from the Sahara Desert and had um, a fossil and a rug and a, a necklace. And I thought, gosh, you know how much that would have cost him when I sent him something. The last thing I expected was for him to feel like he had to send me something, but it was just so sweet. And I was very touched by him and that's my camel story. <laughs> well, that's going to be it for this episode of Betty in the Sky with a Suitcase. This episode called People Are Strange. And, you know, while people are strange, they also have a lot of heart. So that's it. I hope you'll join me again next time for another episode of Betty in the Sky with a Suitcase. See you then. Bye.
Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.